Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The leaders of the U.S. and North Korea met for the first time last night. Philip Yoon is executive director and chief operating officer of the Plowshares Fund. He spent hundreds of hours in talks with North Korea when he was in the Clinton administration. And we're going to chat about the meeting between President Trump and Chairman Kim Jong-un. Thanks for joining us, Philip. Oh, great to be here. Thank you. I, you know, there were so many crazy expectations for this summit. People were saying it could realign the Asia security infrastructure for our lifetime. There were expectations about a peace treaty to end the Korean War. Uh, in the end, we got this rather bland joint statement and some happy words, an end to the military exercise maneuvers, a, a facility shut down in North Korea. What, what did this? Um, was there enough substance to this? Well, I'm holding judgment on everything at this point. I don't know what was actually said in these meetings and subsequently or before. So that can have a really big impact. I think the bad part of this or the not so good, I would say, is it's very weak in details and there's not a lot of clarity. The critical notion of what is denuclearization, uh, we have no idea what that means. Is it, uh, is it timing? Is it now, short term, medium term, long term? And what does it encompass. So that's not clear. And I was hoping and thinking there was going to be a significant or a big down payment. There was speculation that North Korea might be willing to give up some of its nuclear fissile material, the stuff that explodes, which is critical to nuclear weapons. None of that had happened. Um, the good on this, though, is that it's diplomacy. It just shows you that there are possibilities here. And the symbolism, I think, um, is can't, you know, can be oversold. Uh, and we've got to be careful not for that to be the case. But there is symbolism in here that is important. And you've got to remember, less than a year ago, people were really talking about uh, tensions being so high that there was going to be possibly a unilateral attack by the United States, the bloody nose strategy that was somehow that had made the rounds back in December. And then finally, what is good about this, it is a start of a process here. And I think that's ultimately where it had to go if we were going to be realistic about this. I think reality is now hitting, uh, Donald Trump has hit the re a brick wall of reality here, that it's going to take a while. And so um, that is good because success... For success to happen, this is what success looks like. We don't know if it's going to be successful moving forward because follow-up is everything. But we've traveled this road before, and we've had success up to a certain point, and then it veered off course. So these are the things, these are the bases you're going to have to touch in order to become successful. We're just going to have to see what's going to be happening in the next few months and the years ahead. Donald Trump, in, in his press conference, was talking about how he got the feeling, and he was all about the first impression and getting to know Kim Jong-un. And he says they want to make a deal. And he's very optimistic that things can happen very, very, very fast, which is a timeline that is kind of amorphous. Um, what, what does all that mean to you, that he's, he gives you this uh, bum's rush of, of optimism? <laughs> I'm skeptical. I mean, so this is the way I look at it. We always talk about North Korea. One of the big things is you take North Koreans as they are and not as you wish them to be. People talking about they wish they behaved more in a, in a more uh, um, conventional way. Donald Trump is the same way. I mean, Donald Trump is going to be Donald Trump, and he's going to sell. Uh, I, you know, realistically, I do not think North Korea is, after investing uh, literally so much blood, sweat, tears, and treasures in developing in a very strategic way over the last 25 years to where they are now of having a nuclear weapons capability and a ballistic missile capability. They're not going to give it away easily, and they're not going to give it away quickly. Um, I remember I was in negotiations with North Koreans and subsequent talks when I was a private citizen. They said, you know, if 
Muammar Gaddafi had had nuclear weapons, if Saddam Hussein had had nuclear weapons, and if Slobodan Milosevic of Yugoslavia had nuclear weapons, they'd still be in power. Um, and this is something that the North Koreans understand and they believe. And so this is going to take a while. And again, Donald Trump said he thought healthcare was easy. Oh, it was more difficult than I thought it was. And immigration, same thing. So uh, you, you take it for what it is. Are the perennial negotiations, the endless negotiations that, that might ensue here, is that North Korea's game? Do they get more out of that? Of if they felt like there was actually a threat of military confrontation and they've avoided it for negotiations at which they will begin extracting concessions, they've won already. They could stall this until, uh, you know, the next elections in the United States, get a different president and and really avoid military confrontation altogether. And then they they win. Certainly, that's a possibility. So let me just say from the outset, I have no idea what North Korean intent actually is. I think very few people do. And if they say they do, I don't think, um, you know, I would be very skeptical of what they have to say. Ultimately, what this process is about is about hypothesis testing. There are four questions that we have to answer. The first question is, isn't North Korea willing to give this, this nuclear weapons program up? We don't know. Secondly, if they are willing to give it up, is it over the short, medium, or longer term? I believe, you know, that there's no way they're going to do it over the short term, possibly medium, possibly over longer term. If that's the case, what do they want in exchange for this? And then finally, are we, the United States and the international community, politically willing to do that? Those are four questions that have dogged uh, all of us in, in the United States and in other places worried about North Korea for the last 25 years. And there have been debates about whether that this is the case. Now we have an opportunity for the very first time to meet with a very new leader um, at the highest levels. The, the buck stops with Kim Jong-un, with the leader. What they say has to happen, and their underlings cannot make any excuses for this. So here we have something that's knowable. And so what I'm saying out of all of this is that's what we have to find out before we talk about the questions that you are addressing. Um, what is it? If it is knowable, let's find out, and then we can move forward. Because the alternative is possibly miscalculation and, an, and a horrific war if we're determined to stop North Korea from developing its nuclear weapons program and getting it, making it stronger. And if we're going to do that and risk war, we should do it on facts and not assumptions. I'm talking with Philip Yoon. He's executive director of the Plowshares Fund and spent hundreds of hours in talks with North Koreans when he was in the Clinton administration and subsequent uh, and, and after that. Uh, I wanted to ask a question about uh, some of the uh, movies and things that the United States gave a movie. The South Koreans gave a, a thumb drive with um, all sorts of images on it about what the future could hold for North Korea. And Donald Trump uh, kind of spoke about in a tantalizing way about this. And we have a clip of Donald Trump. Well, they have great beaches. You see that whenever they're exploding their cannons into the ocean, right? So I said, boy, look at that. What, wouldn't that make a great condo behind? And I explained, I said, you know, instead of doing that, you could have the best hotels in the world right there. I think, honestly, I think he's going to do these things. I may be wrong. I mean, I may stand before you in six months and say, hey, I was wrong. I don't know that I'll ever admit that, but I'll find, a, <laughs> I'll find some kind of an excuse. Okay, one or two, one more. Come on. Do you think that any of this 
tantalizing, oh, we could have condos, you could have uh, infrastructure, you could have all these things if you just give up your nuclear weapon. Is that really a persuasive thing to North Korea? Well, I think it's so Donald Trump, again, is selling the best way he can. And I think when he's talking about certain things, he defaults to what he knows. And this is sort of business. And he that's the perspective that he brings. I think uh, Secretary of State Pompeo also talked in that way in terms of the possibilities. North Korea has heard this all along. And I remember when I was involved in negotiations, uh, they are saying and they said with unintended humor, they said, you know, basically, you're asking us to pull our pants down and trust you. Give us everything first and then you can we will trust you and you'll get everything that you want you know that's not going to happen they will not do that because every conversation every decision they make for the longest time has been existential but they are building on the notion that North Korea and Kim Jong-un is on the hook for making the economy better there's no question about that in his first public statement when he after a year after he came into power he recognized in a very rare statement of contrition that the North Korea that the Korean people North Korean people have suffered way too much um, economically and they need not suffer that for very much longer so he's on the hook for that the dilemma for for Kim Jong-un is that if he opens too quickly or too fast or in a way that is not controllable, then his actual political situation, his his hold on power could be threatened. So this is the dilemma that uh, Kim Jong-un um, has. And, but we do know that there's speculation, again, that he wants to bring North Korea into the modern era. The U.S. gave up on military exercises and suspended military exercises with South Korea, which have always been a point of contention. And it seems like the South Koreans were caught off guard. Do, do you buy that? Is that something that uh, you think is real? That's what I'm hearing. And based on um, what uh, we've, we've seen actions in the past, you know, it would not surprise me that way. And in fact, the, North, the South Koreans in the statement that they used – uh, was um, actually rather telling when when they hear something in certain respects that they don't necessarily like or uh, they were caught by surprise. They say they have to look into it more. I think that's what they were talking about. I mean, think about this way. Uh, when the South Koreans, uh, NASA security advisor and the head of their uh, CIA went to Washington, Donald Trump, after meeting with him, said, I'll meet with Kim Jong-un. Well, he did not talk with the uh, with the with the Japanese um, Prime Minister Abe, who we had reportedly a very good relationship, and then subsequently, it seems like oh, was it only two weeks ago, something like that, where Kim Jong Un, I mean, where uh, Donald Trump decided that he wasn't going to, he called off the summit. And if you recall, he had just met the South Korean pre president uh, uh, a okay. couple days before, and there was no inkling related to this. So this doesn't surprise me. And then you also have the Pentagon issuing a very interesting statement that their security uh, posture remains the same. So we'll, we'll just have to see what happens. Uh, what do, you, do you think that ultimately the biggest winner here might have been the North Korean-Chinese relations? Because uh, it, here we've had uh, two meetings between their leaders. There's going to be another one in North Korea with President Xi. Uh, this, this seems like China's going to get, uh, and North Korea is going to get a lot out of China out of this. Well, short term, yes. Maybe, you know, we know that the Chinese did not like these war exercises. Um, they have talked about as well. North Korea did not like them. But uh, again, it, it, it's sort of like 
taking score in the first quarter, does that really ultimately make a difference towards the end? Uh, it's really what happens at the end of the game. This is the beginning of a process. There's a long process that's going to go on here. Now, one of the things related to China that I, I want to underscore is that the relationship um, between the United, between North Korea and China, or you know, the, there's not a love loss between those two countries. It is rather more uh, a marriage of interests at this point in time, and we have to realize that North Korea strategically wants to get out from under the thumb of China. That's because they are so much more dependent on China and their economy in ways that they think is is very uh, does not help them in any way, shape, or form. And so there is, and the Chinese know this, so right. they're worried that the United States is going to cut, North Korea is going to cut a deal with uh, the United States. So there's a, there's a double game going on here, and North Korea has proved adept at playing big powers off of each other and have done so for many years. Philip Yoon is executive director of the Plowshares Fund. He is a former North Korean uh, negotiator when he was with the Clinton administration. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the summit between President Trump and Kim Jong-un. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk about a new podcast about refugees. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. One of the reactions to the biggest refugee crisis since World War II has been a populist uprising in Western countries. But the podcast Displaced represents a different kind of response. It examines root causes and reimagines the best way to assist refugees. The co-hosts of the Displaced podcast are Ravi Gurumuthi and Grant Gordon. They're both with the International Rescue Committee and join me now. Thanks for joining me, guys. Pleasure to be here. Great to join you. Um, Ravi, why don't you tell us a little bit about the idea to make a podcast about refugees? Because you're you're both with the International Rescue Committee, one of the most storied organizations of refugee helping in the United States, and that um, you you're kind of in the refugee helping business, and now you're talking about it. Yeah, I mean, the, the inspiration for this was really twofold. One, we in our day jobs are currently trying to design and test new solutions that can reach more people and make a bigger difference to their lives. And the very selfish reason I had was that I wanted to talk to inspirational people who can help us do that. But I think the other reason was that we've noticed that there's huge interest now in this refugee crisis, as you say, the biggest since World War II, with over 65 million people displaced. And what we're seeing, I think, is people who are interested not just in what is happening, but why? What are the root causes? Why is Yemen or Syria in the state it's in? But also, what can we do about it? What are the solutions that can actually change people's lives? And we wanted to get into that why and how rather than just focusing on the headlines. So you've inter- interviewed a, an interesting array of people so far. Um, Grant, tell us about some of the people and what, why you chose them. Um, at Displaced, we uh, conduct long-form interviews with leading foreign policymakers, humanitarians, and innovators to shed light on the causes and consequences of conflict. We've had the chance to speak with former Secretary of State and herself a refugee, Madeleine Albright, uh, who was able to expound on understanding the political context in which the current refugee crisis is happening, to people such as Mandy Patinkin, who you may know better from Homeland, and has become an ambassador for the International Rescue Committee and a vocal advocate for refugees. 
Our goal through this podcast is to really get a diverse set of views that provide a way to open the aperture for audience members to understand the crisis and what can be done about it from every angle. You know what? We've pulled a clip from Mandy Patankin talking on the Displaced podcast. Here he is really laying it on the line. My grandpa Max, who came to America uh, fleeing the pogroms of Eastern Europe in the uh, late 1800s, uh, had a saying in Yiddish that was passed along in the family. And the saying in Yiddish is, which means the wheel is always turning. So if you're at the top of the wheel, you'll get to the bottom and then it'll keep going and it's a fluid system. And so, but you will be at the bottom at some point. And therefore the old story, if someone is knocking for help and desperate for welcome, if you're not there to open the door and welcome them, no one will be there when you need somebody to welcome you. That's Mandy Patankin on the Displaced podcast, talking with Ravi Gurumurthy and Grant Gordon, the co-hosts. Uh, he's been a big supporter, and he goes places with you every year, the International Rescue Committee. Yeah, um, Mandy has been a fantastic supporter of the NRC. He's been to Greece and to Uganda. He was there two years ago uh, to see people fleeing the boats uh, onto Lesbos Island. And what I think he's done fantastically well is bring to life the human consequences of the refugee crisis and also reminded us, as he does in that clip, that we are facing a similar situation to uh, his ancestors back in the Second World War and we have to respond in a different way. And I, I really think that people like Mandy are exactly the kind of people who can bring our message to a broader audience. Now, you're also talking with uh, people who are also in the field, uh, like the International Rescue Committee. There's the Save the Children, and, and you had a great conversation with the, the top person from Save the Children. Indeed, we've had the opportunity to chat with Helene Gale, Carolyn Miles, fantastic chief executive officers of major international institutions providing humanitarian aid. And one of the reasons that we launched those interviews is to... Uh, get a sense of what's underneath the hood of humanitarian response. I think it's easy to focus um, on the victims at the end of the line solely, but one of the things that we want to do is take a step back and provide a picture of, of how this all works, um, how we lead large organizations, how we deliver uh, life-saving uh, aid into the most challenging uh, contexts, and really give a sense of, of what this industry is like. Right now, the humanitarian sector is about a $25 billion a year sector, uh, which you know saves a innumerable amount of lives. And one of the goals is to explain that sector. And, it, you know, one of the things I got from those conversations is that there's a lot of frustration with warehousing people. Nobody wants to warehouse people. Everybody wants a different solution. Yeah, I think this is one of the things we really brought out in an interview with Alex Olenikoff, who was the former Deputy High Commissioner for the UN um, Refugee Commission. And he uses this phrase, second exile. And I think it's a really profound point, which is what you're seeing are people fleeing over the border, but then stuck in limbo. They're not able to return back home because wars are lasting longer. But nor are they being resettled into third-party countries like the US as it's reducing its number of people who are being resettled. Instead, they're stuck in these countries and then denied the right to work, denied access to education. And uh, as you say, I think we're seeing all of the countries at the moment not necessarily step up to the plate given this crisis. To, to put this in perspective, as you were mentioning at the top, you know, there's, the world is witnessing the largest displacement crisis since World War II with 65 million individuals displaced, 22 million of whom are refugees, which means they've crossed an international border to do so. But the distribution of where those refugees live is not kind of equally parsed out as, as Ravi is suggesting. And so to give you an example, the United States uh, recently 
resettles between 75,000 and 200,000 refugees per year. Whereas Jordan, uh, over the past five years since the Syrian crisis began, has received an estimated 1.2 million refugees, which in proportionate terms is equivalent to absorbing 63 million refugees in the United States, which is just a mind-boggling number. And right now, the crucial political challenge of our time is to figure out a system and enterprise that can more fairly support uh, uh, those refugees globally and figure out how to provide this public good. You can hear more conversation about refugees at the Displaced podcast. Find it on iTunes, and you can find the International Rescue Committee at rescue.org. Thanks a lot for joining me, Ravi Gurumurthy and Grant Gordon, both with the International Rescue Committee and the Displaced podcast. Thanks for doing what you're doing. Thanks Thank very you much. so much. Coming up after the break, we'll hear the story of how a boat full of Vietnamese refugees changed important rules for captains at sea. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Thirty years ago this month, a U.S. Navy ship came across a boat full of Vietnamese refugees adrift in the South China Sea. What happened next would change important rules for captains at sea. For the BBC program Witness, Gabriel Gatehouse talked with one of the American sailors and a Vietnamese survivor. You know, they were jumping up and down, waving at the ship, yelling and screaming. And It's June the 9th, 1988, and after 17 days adrift at sea, a boat full of Vietnamese refugees encounters a U.S. Navy vessel some 280 miles from land. You know, they, they needed help. It was very evident they needed help. Bill Clunan was an officer aboard the USS Dubuque. It was not unusual in those days to come across migrants in Southeast Asian waters. In the decades following the end of the Vietnam War, more than a million people crowded into small boats, fleeing their country. But this particular encounter would have fateful consequences, and the case of the USS Dubuque would shock America and help define the obligations of ship's captains at sea. Well, I would say the boat was about 50 feet in length. It was an old wooden boat, did not look seaworthy. On the stern of the boat, there was a sail. The sail is significant in a way that will become apparent later. It was definitely overcrowded. There were many, many people. They were shabbily dressed. You could tell that they had been at sea for quite some time. You could tell that they were in need of food and water. Uh, they, they were not smiling, but they were gesturing, please help me, please help me. We 
we so happy because we thought that's American ship they will have. That's Tung Ching, one of the people aboard the Vietnamese boat. First, uh, we saw the small spot far, far from the uh, ocean. Later, they come near, near, and they so big, huge. Tung and her fellow passengers believed they were saved. The engine on their boat had broken shortly after leaving Vietnamese shores. Not long after that, they'd run out of food and fresh water. Now, two and a half weeks later, weak and emaciated though they were, some jumped into the sea and swam over to the Dubuque. But when they swim near there, my brother um, climbed on the, the ship and they shake him, drop down. So they said, come back. So they swim back to the boat. I was on the stern gate of the ship. I, I saw a man drowned, Vietnamese. He was trying to hold on to, to a line coming off the ship. Somebody was told on the ship to shake the line. and The boat was not that far from the ship at the time. I'm recalling that now. And somebody on the ship had thrown a life ring, and he got scolded for doing that. The USS Dubuque was on its way from Japan to the Persian Gulf. The captain, Alexander Balian, ordered the Dubuque's small launch to make its way over to the migrant's boat to investigate. But he told his men not to climb aboard the smaller vessel and not to allow any of the migrants on board his. Instead, they communicated via a loud hailer through a Vietnamese-speaking naval officer. This seems to have resulted in a series of fateful and eventually fatal misunderstandings. He felt in his mind he had a mission to complete, and the mission did not include picking up refugees. Captain Balian would later say he was under the impression that the migrant boat had been at sea for only seven, not 17 days. Furthermore, he claimed to know nothing about the boat's engine, which had broken early during the voyage, believing instead that it had taken the migrants a week to travel 250 miles from their original destination using the makeshift sail that Bill Clunan had referred to. Well, the small boat went and investigated, and as I understand it, it was decided that we would supply the Vietnamese boat with food and uh, some water. And that was that. Assuming that the migrants could cover an additional 250 miles in another week, Captain Balian sent over the food and water he calculated they needed to reach the Philippines and then steered his ship on towards the Persian Gulf. And we have food and water after 19 days, so we're so happy. And we just uh, eat and drink and waiting, waiting. Yeah, and after two days, nothing. Through the Vietnamese translator, Tung and her fellow passengers had been given to understand that help would be on its way. But no help ever came. Very soon they'd eaten their way through their provisions and the terror of hunger and of thirst began again. I felt very badly about what we had just done. We did not save them. Uh, you know, we left people to their own devices. And 
as we found out later, those devices were not good. As the boat drifted aimlessly on the ocean, people on board began to die. Those who survived did so by eating the flesh of their comrades. That's a very hard part in my life, and in the honor people survive. We have one, before he died, he said, just take him like a food. He told, just take me. So begin from that day, from that moment, and after that, we have some from the dead people. That's the, still make me very, very sad. Yeah. Tung's boat was finally rescued after another two and a half weeks at sea by fishermen off the coast of the Philippines. By that time, more than half the people on board had perished. When the news of the boat's encounter with the USS Dubuque reached the United States, there was outrage. Captain Balian was court-martialed. He was spared prison, but found guilty of dereliction of duty and was relieved of his command. Many of the other crew members felt the same as I did. You know, it was not right to leave people out in the middle of the ocean. If you see people in distress at sea, it is your duty to try and save them. And we did not perform our duty. The case of the USS Dubuque is, to this day, taught by the United States Navy as part of its ethics course for ship's commanders. Tung Ching now lives in the United States. And today, when she watches the news, she sees pictures of thousands of migrants, again, adrift in the waters of Southeast Asia or of the Mediterranean. To her, it feels like history repeating itself. Now I saw the face and remind me, remind me that day I am the ocean, day, night, day, night, and just pray, God, please help me, please help me. I, I just feel the same, just the same us before. I hope now someone can uh, give them a hand because they still have the same blood, red blood like us. Tung Ching and Bill Clunan were talking to me, Gabriel Gatehouse, for witness. Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to talk about albinism. People with albinism face serious social challenges. They're discriminated against. They're exoticized in a lot of places. And we're going to talk about albinism on International Albinism Awareness Day. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Worldview was produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida, Mike Gilmore engineered. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.